seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast. This is a very special episode. I am stoked to welcome Monkey Kim to the conversation. Monkey Kim has been part of the Monkey Elders since August 13th, 2017. So we're coming up on four years this year. So the time has flown by and she's been, she's just been such an amazing addition to the Monkey team. We're, we're a small team. It's myself, David, who's the co-founder and Monkey Kim. And many monkeys have had the pleasure of interacting with her. And she's just, uh, what stood out from the beginning was she just, she, she was a monkey. She lives a wild life up in Northern Minnesota. She thinks differently. She thinks about a really, she's into and thinks about a lot of really just wild and interesting things. And we always, every time we talk, uh, just Kim and I, we always have these really just, it's like a journey of a conversation. We go all over the place. It's all things wild, all things monkey. And I really enjoy talking to her. And it's like every time we finish the conversation, I'm like, man, we should have recorded that. So I appreciate her talking with me. And again, I know many monkeys have had the pleasure of interacting with her. So it's good to learn a little bit more about her background. And I learned a lot from this episode as well. So check the show notes. Shout out to Monkey Kim, and hopefully this is the first conversation of many. So, here we go. It's uh, it, it looks like it's been uh, frosty up north. It looks like it's going to get a lot frostier. <laughs> oh no! We have there's a storm south of us right now. We're only getting a little bit of a little bit of snow, but it's going to pull down a whole bunch of that Arctic air. Sounds like everyone's going to get it, but we're supposed to have wind chills like 40 to 50 oh, below no. this weekend. Oh, it's going to be a lot of indoor workouts. Okay. <laughs> there was a monkey. Well, there's this monkey Facebook group. Shout out, by the way. Uh, these guys started and this monkey, I don't know where he's from. I need to message him, but he'd posted like asking about environmental conditioning and he posted a screenshot of the weather. It was like negative 24 or maybe it was negative 34, but you know, here it's like 20, maybe in the teens, but that's just next level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a couple of days last week where we got down close to a negative 30. Okay. Which is pretty common for us. We usually see at least a few days, like negative 30, negative 40 during, during the year. Last year, we got away with nothing colder than about negative 25, so okay. it's coming for this week. It looks like after tomorrow, we won't get above zero for about, like, the whole week. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be some cold days. What, um, you said you've been listening to Katie Bowman a lot, right? Oh, yeah. I love Katie Bowman. Had you, had you listened to her podcast before? Not her podcast. I have read all of her books okay. and I have followed her on Instagram for a long time. For some reason, I never thought to check if she had a podcast. Okay. But yeah, yeah, she's great. Oh, yeah. I, uh, it's, I'm kind of the opposite. I've listened to pretty much every podcast episode, but mm-hmm. I haven't read any of the books. But Ur- you know who turned me on her was uh, Earl, Wildman oh. Earl. Um, he'd mentioned her way back. I think that was in... 2017 
he mm-hmm. he showed me all these things that I should have I'd kind of like heard whispers of over the years and never really dove into. And then I went, you know, came back. That's actually what kind of got me into podcasts was that trip um, when I went and stayed with him. But yeah, she's uh, that whole biomechanistic look. Mm-hmm. It just not not even exercise, but just how we live is so fascinating to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I love it. I like to listen to her when I take my longer walks because mm-hmm. it keeps me, you know, she'll just mention something. I'm like, Oh, are my feet straight? Right. <laughs> totally. Makes me think about what I'm doing all the time. Totally. Yeah. I love her stuff. That's an interesting practice. Like, like it's like you're uh, applying in real time, the, the principles and lessons and whatnot. Yeah, especially in the winter, I try to use, like she did over Christmas, a like Advent thing where she did like a different move each day. Right. And so it was a good reminder for winter because we spend so much time inside. Like I try to get out every day, even when it's really cold. If it's just a short walk, I get outside every day. But it's not the same as like in the summer when you're gardening and hiking and doing all that stuff. So I, I think about it a lot. Like today I, I cleaned the light. There's above my head, there's a light fixture with a fan on it. And I noticed this morning it was like super dusty. So instead of just being more efficient and taking all the light fixtures off, bringing them to the kitchen, washing them and bringing them all back, I did them one at a time. So okay. I had to get up and down off the chair multiple times and then trips to the kitchen multiple times, which is, I guess that's one of my favorite things about Katie is she really points out like all those little things that we outsource or try to make more efficient that have resulted in us losing like strength and mobility and movement throughout the day, you know, just walking back and forth to do stuff, going up and down the stairs, chopping food, stuff like that. So I try to do more of that in the winter since we spent so much time inside. Right. That's interesting. I, uh, I bought, I thought I didn't realize it was whole bean coffee. So I bought this thing of coffee yesterday and this morning I went to make coffee, you know, and I happen to have a hand grinder Oh yeah. So I was like cranking super hard. It honestly was a pretty good shoulder pump. I like switched arms, you know, and I, I've been kind of on a similar kick lately where I've always been in the mindset of like my training program, you know, and that was, if it was anything outside of that, it, it just was fluff, you know, even if you're just sitting on the couch and I've kind of totally 180 where it's, it's like the training program is almost more like the icing on the cake and then everything else is, Maybe not cake, but uh, it's like the uh, it's like the really high quality sea salt you sprinkle on top of your bone in ribeye, mm-hmm. you know, with the avocado on, and steamed broccoli on the side. You know, it's right. um, yeah. yeah. And I really I've noticed I just feel better, mm-hmm. kind of taking that more holistic approach. You know, yeah, yeah, I do. I lucked out this fall when I was hunting with my oldest was grouse hunting and found a stand of birch that had a bunch of chaga on it i don't specifically hunt for it because i'm not that patient but we do have it here so when i see it i'll harvest it and got three or four big chunks of chaga and so i I dried it and then when i when i pulverize it like i could use the blender but i use the mortar and pestle i sit in front i'll sit like put a netflix show on and sit on the carpet and just grind away at this chaga it's like it's like pulverizing wood it's just super Oh, wow. It's hard. <laughs> so it gets to be quite my forearm gets sore by the next day using that mortar and pistol all the time. 
is chaga the um is that the mushroom that's in i'm totally blanking on the name but there's like a tea coffee that uses it yeah 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 there's there's quite a few places now that use it like some people just make just tea out of it they just brew it like a loose leaf tea i add mine to my coffee in the morning okay um i've never done it as a tea myself it's very very woodsy like and i guess i don't know i thought i'm not sure how that'll taste as a tea so i just put it in my coffee (laughs) okay what's like the um Gosh, what's the name? There's a there's like a coffee brand that uses it, right? I can't remember the name. Yeah, there there is. There's I've seen coffee both that that's chaga, and then there's one that up. does like lion's mane. Oh yeah, maybe that's what it is. Type of a coffee, right? Let's see if I can pull it up here real quick. Uh, I sent Earl one. I can't remember the name. Oh yeah, Four Sigmatic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 What. I guess I could look this up too, but what's the, um, is there any specific kind of benefits to chaga specifically? It, a lot of people use it for specifically for like inflammation types of issues, like joint pain types of problems. I've never looked at like the actual properties of it, which I should, I actually enjoy digging into those things once in a while just to see, just to see what's going on with stuff. It's so it's one of those things that, that people here have done for a long time. Okay. So it was kind of one of those things where I would hear like grandparents talk about it and just thought they were doing weird grandparent <laughs> stuff. And then I hear it come up like a, in books or in podcasts. I'm like, wait, <laughs> they actually were onto something. Totally. Hiking mushrooms off the trees. Right. Well, it's like, it's funny how like our grandparents or great grandparents wisdom is kind of coming full circle now. It's like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. Like, you know, and I, I I do this a lot, but I I don't want to undermine Western medicine or science Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But there's just, we're kind of losing the forest for the trees, you know, is that the right way to say it? Or is it trees for the forest? (laughs) Right. It can be hard, hard to find a balance as far as between the two. Right. You know, I think you can make use of both. Right. So, yeah, it, it was funny because my grandma lived until she passed away, lived next door to us. Oh. And I mow our yard with a real mower. Okay. Like old, old school, like scissor real mower. And she would always use until she got too immobile to do it herself. She was like a self, like a self-propelled mower in her yard okay. she would always yell at me because she said she's like you're going backwards she said my generation did all this stuff to make life <laughs> easier for you and you're doing it the hard way right i was like yeah but i like i like that it's quiet i don't like all the you know having to start the lawnmower and buy gas for it and then there's smelly lawnmower fumes right <laughs> so I could, then i can mow barefoot which is nice oh yeah i i found chaga real quick the this is from Healthline, but just kind of the high-level stuff is boosts the immune system, fights inflammation, prevents and fights cancer, lowers blood sugar, lowers cholesterol. Interesting. Yeah. And it tastes good in coffee. It does, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, the the stuff that you can find in the woods. I've been trying to do a little bit more of that over the past couple of years of just... I try to pick up like something new each spring. Right. There's just so much that sometimes I get like overwhelmed trying to do thinking I can do everything, you know, right. finding every mushroom or whatever. So that was one thing that we did this summer and this fall. My sister and I, my sister was here 
back home in Ely because of COVID. She lost her mm. job and she came home for the summer. So we spent a lot of time in the woods together, which we haven't really gotten to do before, before she moved to California. And we spent a lot of time identifying mushrooms. Okay. <laughs> lots and lots of, we had really good mushroom season this like late summer. So we spent a lot of time doing that. They're pretty interesting, strange things. How, how did you learn to do that? So oddly enough, so there's not that, we only have a few mushrooms here that are actually edible. Okay. There's only one of them that can really be confused with something else. So there's only one you got to be really sure about because you don't want to eat the wrong one. Right. <laughs> we don't have a lot of them where you're going to mix it up and accidentally, you know, give yourself liver toxicity or something. Right. But there, there's one as long as you know how to tell the difference. So it kind of, I, I grew up doing a little bit of foraging. My, my grandparents picked a lot of berries. We have a lot of, we have wild blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, apples, plums. There's something else like that, and choke cherries. So we have a lot of those here. And my grandparents always made jam. So they were oh, okay. always after the stocking up for winter to make jam. And we got kind of, convinced to go berry picking and sitting and sitting in the woods picking berries to give to the grandparents for making jam but I ate all mine because I don't <laughs> like to give them up I like the berries more than I like the jam so it was kind of a one for the bucket two for me kind of okay <laughs> kind of a berry picking so it was kind of something I grew up with we did a lot of hunting and fishing and stuff when I was a kid and it I don't know it's kind of one of those weird things where I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's just some things like you just kind of know, like, like intuitively know certain things. And I think a lot of that was just stuff I picked up from spending time with like my grandparents and my parents in the woods, like stuff they would talk about, but I didn't consciously remember it. Mm. So there would be stuff that I would be curious about and go looking for the answers first. So I'd be like, I wonder about this. And so some things you can Google and you can find answers and then other things we can't. And then I'm like, well, I'm not going to try. You know, I'm not going to eat this mushroom because I don't know what that's about. When I, when I first started doing any kind of mushroom hunting, I always verified it with a local guy who I know who is very well versed on his identification just to make sure I didn't eat something I shouldn't. Um, so it just, it just kind of started from, from being young and just kind of working up from there. Now that... I have the time to get in the woods more often. It's just been something that I've been more interested in over the years. What? So like just thinking about, I've been really curious about this recently because I went, I did a podcast with this guy, Logan Schwartz, and he was talking about seasonal eating. And then I was talking to my buddy, Michael Butts, and we were talking about like keto diet, vegan, carnivore, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I think I realized I finally, I'm a militant omnivore. <laughs> stay strong stay strong homies but uh yeah it's so fascinating to me but um i was trying to think like where do you get fat in the wild and then i was i went down another just thought hole of just edible plants you know I, i've spent a lot of time out in the woods and i suspect i've walked by a lot of stuff and huckleberries that's always been my go-to just because they're so mm -hmm. easy and they're pretty much impossible to mess up but Mm -hmm. you know mushrooms is something i've never done or explored 
And then just, I, I don't even know what else is possible. So I'm just curious of if you've dove into that, like outside of mushrooms and berries, what else do you forage? A little bit. We have a benefit here. We have a place that's, we have a couple of them up here. I don't know if they're elsewhere in the country, but they call them folk schools. We have one here in Ely that's only been open for maybe five years. And then there's one oh. in a town a couple hours from here up in Grand Marais. And they basically teach traditional skills. Okay. So like one of the things they do is they build a birch bark canoe and they do multiple classes. So you can learn how to do that. You can learn how to make like pine needle crafts and basically like, you know, nomadic or native people come in and they teach their crafts, you know. And so you can learn some of them there. So kind of some of it kind of jumped off from there just because it was something I was always interested in, but didn't have like the information to just jump in. And so we have some of those people here that do like traditional, traditional living. We have people here who do flint napping. Okay. So they do like, they make their own like arrowheads and knives and things like that. And my son who's he's an adult now, but when he was a teenager, he got into flint napping. Oh, cool. Okay. And in the summer we have like an art festival and this group of people that they called the voyagers would come and they would like dress in their, like they make their outfits. They have like leather boots and fur coats and hats. And so they do all their own trapping and hunting and they make all of these things and they would come and set up like a camp in the park with their like traditional, um, nomadic like huts and things like that and then there was one guy there who did flint napping and my son was just like how do you do that like I want to learn how to do that and he gave him like a pile of rock and kind of got him started and so he was the one that kind of jumped off with it's like oh so you can find that information here if you know where to look so it's one of those things where once it's like in your awareness you just see more of it so there, there are people here who teach classes on a variety of stuff you know, from my, my husband takes classes at the folk school for forging. Oh, cool. For okay. like knife making and right, that kind right. of stuff. Shout out Brock Blades. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes. So it, it, it's something that, that has always kind of been present here. And it, it was funny to me because until I went to college, I didn't really realize that everybody didn't just live this way. Like I grew up trapping with my dad. It's not something we do anymore. But it was how we supplemented income in the winter. His sure. job, he worked in a mine. And so his job was very, like, tentative. Like, he'd get laid off often. And part of the way we supplemented our income was in trapping. And so we'd walk, even, like, being seven, eight years old, would walk, like, 15 miles in the winter oh, over wow. the lakes and clear the traps. And then because my dad worked shift work, part of my job was to take the furs into town and sell them to fur traders who actually came and bought them. And so, so that was like how I that's grew pretty, up and this was in the eighties, you know, like I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> that's like some pioneer yeah. stuff. Some yeah, frontiersmen. it is. And a lot of people still do that. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched like Yukon men or those shows up in Northern Canada mm-hmm. and Alaska mm-hmm. where they have like trap lines and stuff. And like, they do that here. Right. You know, people still, still trap. There's lots of people who hunt specifically for food. You know, they're needing to hunt to fill their freezers and they fish for the same reason. And. It just, just kind of has always been present here. And I remember going to college and being like, wow, people don't do that. Right. <laughs> Not everybody has to go sell, sell beavers in town. Totally. Is that what you're trapping beavers? Beavers and muskrats. Yeah. Okay. 
There's Beavers um, are what you wanted. They're the harder ones, but they were the ones that brought more money. Okay. <laughs> do, you, do you follow or have you heard of Steven Rinella? The He's Meat no. Eater. He, um, he, no. he has a show on Netflix called Meat Eater, which is awesome. And it's fishing. It's hunting. It's... Mm-hmm. I, Maybe they do a little bit of trapping, but um, he's from Michigan, I believe. Okay. You know, grew up very similarly, actually. You know, had his own trap line when he was a kid. And he kind of lived this, like, trapper, hunter-gatherer life in his kind of late teens, early 20s. I think up in the UP in the okay, Upper okay. Peninsula of Michigan. But he's always talking about beaver tail and how delicious it, delicious it is. Have you ever tried it? I haven't okay. that I know of. Okay. It's possible. It was kind of funny because I would just eat, you know, whatever. And then when I got to be older, I'd be like, wow, we had some weird stuff. When I was sure, like sure. So it's possible because my my family that settled here when they immigrated here, we're all from Finland. So it's all okay. very, all my heritage is Nordic. And so we ate a lot of pickled stuff because that's just how they got through winters was pickling mm. stuff. We ate a lot of, stri- you know, we ate like pickled pig's feet and oh, wow. pickled herring and all kinds pickled of Pickled like, herrings. I have a jar of that in my uh, refrigerator right now. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, it is good. It's funny because my husband grew up in North Dakota and he's just like, I can't believe you're eating <laughs> But, you know, his family grew up eating like blood sausage and stuff. Sure, sure. So lots of, lots of traditional stuff in both of our families. What are, what are some of the other, I guess, unusual kind of Scandinavian? Oh, I can't think of what it's called. Uh, my my no. great grandma, who I, I had a, knew her for a lot of years. She didn't pass away until I was in my twenties. Okay. So actually, my first son spent time with his great great grandma. Oh wow! Which is which is pretty unique. So I, I I grew up had her my whole childhood and into adulthood. And wow. She moved here from Finland when she was a teenager, and they had this. I can't remember what it's called. It's kind of like a cross between yogurt and kefir. It's kind of like a watery yogurt, mm. but it just has the weirdest texture. Like I can't eat it. Like I love yogurt. Okay. I, make, I make yogurt at home. I love kefir, but that stuff just, it, you had to leave it in the fridge for like days and days before you could eat it. And it mm. just has this really kind of slimy texture. She just loved it. And I was like, <laughs> no, I can eat most things. I eat a lot of stuff. Okay. But that and lutefisk, the same thing. It's the, the texture. I will not eat lutefisk. I, I just don't think you should eat food that's soaked in lye. It just seems like a bad idea. That's what lutefisk is? Yeah. So what? So can you, I, I, I don't, I've heard the term, but I don't really know what it is. Yeah, it's fish. I don't know exactly the whole process of making it here. Not this, not this year because of COVID, but in the fall here, they have a lutefisk like festival at one of the churches. And so you just come and you eat lutefisk as a traditional meal. And they always send some poor new like news person up here to watch <laughs> them eat it on camera for the first time. Okay. So it, it's like a slab of fish, but it's soaked in lye and I assume some other stuff to preserve it. Okay. But it, it makes it like it kind of disintegrates it. So it gets like super slimy and just, it doesn't have a lot of taste, but it's okay. really texture wise, just not very good. <laughs> not for me. Well, lie, lie is, um, it's super basic. It's super alkaline. Yeah. I want to yeah. look, I'm trying to actually, I'm curious of what it actually is. Oh, so it's just sodium hydroxide. Oh, interesting. Okay. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a positive thing to ingest. No, not for me. <laughs> we did. I'm trying to think of other things we ate, like cabbage rolls are something that's really common. 
Okay. Um, up here. It's funny because you'd think we'd eat a lot more fish. We do fish and we eat it, but like here compared to Finland where it was more of a ocean, you know, there were mm. more ocean Nordic, so they had salmon. They mm-hmm. ate a lot of salmon and stuff like that up in northern Finland. And here we don't really have fatty fish. You know, we mostly have walleye. Right. Northern pike and sunfish. So they're not they're good, but they're not really fatty. Right. Walleye is I had that for the first time in Minnesota actually at my wife's uh aunt and uncles and that it's just there's it's so good. I mm-hmm. I would go I would go to Minnesota specifically to fish for walleye. Yeah, yeah, it is just I don't know why exactly. Like we've tried People will be like, well, you could get tilapia because it's similar. And I, don't, I, I just find that it's not. I don't know. Yeah. I think part of it comes in, at least for me, anything that I have to do the work for myself tastes better. Right. You know, and, and then whatever you're eating tastes better in the woods. So if you catch fish and you cook it over a fire in the woods, it's like the best meal you'll ever have. Right. You know, <laughs> so I don't know if that's part of it, but I've never had anything that really tastes like walleye anywhere else. Totally. You were talking about how you grew up and just how you're getting out now and all that stuff. And it just, I always, I've had this thought of like, there's kind of this binary thing of like, you're either super poor and you have to go like hunt your food or fish because you don't really have other, other choice or you have like a corporate job or whatever you're, you just, you have to grind all day to Mm -hmm. make money, to buy food and shelter. Like, I wonder if there's kind of this blend of like you do a little bit of both, you know, and it seems, seems like it should be. I just don't know it for whatever reason. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like finding that balance can be challenging and maybe it's location. I don't know. Yeah. Like for me, I'm lucky because I don't have to have like the full-time corporate office job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if I, if I'm going to do monkey work, I can take my laptop and sit in the yard and do it. Right. You know, I can lay in the hammock. I can sit on the deck, not in the winter so much, but I can sit on the floor if I want. Right. You know, so I, I move around a lot when I work, like right now I'm at the table, but like I'm, I'll put it on the table and have like a standing desk, my computer, or I'll sit on the floor or whatever. So I can move around a lot, which is nice. For me, really getting into doing more of like the foraging and stuff has required me to spend a lot more time outside. Mm -hmm. I I think it's hard to do when, when you're on such limited time. You know, if you have a job where you're commuting, so you're gone all day and then you come home and evening is family time. It's like just doing it on the weekend, I think is, it makes it hard, you know, because then you got to kind of focus your whole weekend on that if you want to have the time, it's kind of something that, you know, versus like studying in college where you might cram for a test or whatever, it's kind of stuff that has come over time, like a little bit at a time, just spending time in the woods and learning how to identify stuff. Right. So it it definitely has taken some time. I I think the balance is, is hard. I'm lucky because I have lots of free time to be able to get out in the woods and you know, I can schedule, I can get up and work at six in the morning and be done by 10 and then be out in the woods for the rest of the day. You know, whereas my husband works a government job, so he's, you know, eight to four thirty. Right. Right. I just so. wonder, like, you know, we spend probably besides our mortgage food. Well, I guess healthcare, that's super expensive, but foods like it's mortgage, healthcare, food. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, like, you know, maybe it's gardening 
maybe it's like instead of going for a trail run, hike to a lake and you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you could you could kind of make it's like instead of spending energy and getting your quote unquote exercise and training the old fashioned way, getting food, whether it was farming, mm-hmm. hunting, gathering, whatever, you're you and I are probably doing similar things. We were pounding keys mm-hmm. and uh you know, then you gotta go buy your you know, I just I wonder if you could kind of whittle away at that thousand dollar a month grocery bill. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know. It's just something I think yeah, about. Yeah. That was for us the past year since the whole pandemic thing started, like our grocery bill had kind of gone down. Like our we have three kids. The oldest was at college. He's 24. And then we have an 18-year-old who just graduated last May and then a 12-year-old. So the college kid was doing his thing. And the 18-year-old, he was not here much. Like, he lived here, but that was about it. He was with his friends most of the time. So our grocery bill had gone down. But we also did lots of stuff. Like, we went out to eat a lot. We went to movies. Well, then when all that stopped... Like groceries was one of the only things we had. And then all the, all the kids were home, you know, then they couldn't go anywhere. The college kid had to come home. And so our grocery bill went way up. Like we spend a lot on groceries. It's that balance of trying to find, like to have it be a meaningful impact on groceries has been hard. That's been one of the things I've been working on probably for 10 years since we moved back here. Like we have, we have a yard and we have, so we have a garden and kind of have like this dedicated garden space with big like six foot containers and and that goes well but I'm not good at preserving it like I I tend to plant Mm. enough where I eat it through the summer as it comes out right but like my grandma had a huge garden so she could can tomatoes that would last all winter she would can pickles that would last all winter And it's like, I haven't gotten to that point. Like I follow some like urban gardeners on Instagram and it fascinates me how much comes out of their small spaces. Right. And then I had the weirdest thing happen. I think a squirrel must've gotten it somehow two years ago on our back deck, which does not get much sun. It doesn't get much rain because it's kind of under the lilac trees. This like plant started growing and it kind of looked like a pumpkin. And I was like, well, we'll just let's see, see what that is. Like we don't, we don't have a, I don't know what you'd call it, like a conventional lawn. Like our lawn grows wild. If I let it grow, it's full of like wildflowers and clover and things like that. Okay. So I I do mow it eventually, but I'm pretty slow with the mowing. I kind of let the flowers come up so the bees can have them and and things like that. So we have a lot of stuff that grows in our yard and I like to observe what's growing. So I was like, what is this weird plant? So I just let it grow and it turned out it was actually an acorn squash, which I've never planted. So I eat them. And I think a squirrel got the seeds out of our compost bin and just somehow planted this acorn squash beside our deck. And it grew just fine. No, not much (laughs) water, not much sun, grew into a big plant and produced like three acorn squash. Okay, nice. And I thought, well, what happens if I just randomly like throw things in the yard? Like if I throw seeds out in the yard, are things going to grow? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So I thought, you know, I actually have a lot more space I could work with. Right. For planting stuff so we've kind of been expanding that a little bit okay we planted raspberries and my father-in-law said they're going to take over like you have to trim them you have to stake them i was like i love raspberries they're my favorite i don't care how many of them grow we have a lot of raspberries totally. <laughs> now they're like six feet tall <laughs> oh wow. a lot of raspberries um asparagus is another one asparagus actually grows wild here okay like people people who had like farmsteads and it escaped 
Like you'll find it on the roadside or in the woods, just patches of asparagus growing. So you, okay. you can harvest that wild here if you can find it. It grows really well here. Um, we planted elderberry okay. like two years ago for the first time. So I'm kind of experimenting with, with using more of our yard because I kind of get into these like compartmentalized mindset. It's like, okay, here's the garden space, but we have this whole yard that we don't do anything with. It's like, well, we could plant stuff all over the place. I could have like a whole field of sunflowers on the hill in the front yard. Oh, nice. Okay. Right on. <laughs> so I've been kind of expanding on that the past year or two. Have the, have you, I, th- I don't think we ever really got to it, but have you, is there anything that you know of that kind of grows naturally in the area, specifically Northern Minnesota? It's like, um, besides mushrooms and berries, like, you know, like an asparagus type thing or something like that. Um, there are, I don't know a ton of them yet. I know there are lots of plants that grow that you can just pick and eat. Okay. One of them I know that we get is, um, I can't remember the exact name of the fern. It's, it's a fern that grows the fiddlehead right at the beginning of growing season, like wildflower season. Okay. For us, that is like mid-June, where we really start seeing the wildflowers and the ferns. If you can pick the ferns when they're still the fiddlehead, when they're rolled up and they haven't opened up yet, you can just like fry them up in butter and like put them in a salad. Okay. Um, lots of greens. There's a a wild iris that grows here. It's called, is it blue flag iris? Like you can eat the, like the buds off of them. Okay. I took, several years ago, I took a naturalist class to become a certified naturalist. And that was one of the things we learned. It was about oh, various cool. things you can pick and eat. There's lots of them. I don't know a lot of them yet, but you can just go and like pick leaves off of things and eat them and flowers and <laughs> whatever kinds of things. One of the things I do is we do get here. When I was a kid, I was told it was chamomile, but it's not really chamomile. It kind of looks the same. It's actually called pineapple weed. Oh yeah. Okay. You can pick the flowers and dry it, make tea out of it. That tastes just like pineapple. It's right. actually really good. Okay. So we have that. That's one of the things I do regularly. It takes a, a lot of plants to get a couple of teaspoons of tea. Oh, <laughs> when you're dehydrating stuff, it takes a long time. Okay. Um, we, we get some other fruits here. Like we get wild plums, Canadian plums grow here. We get some apples, mostly the smaller kind of tart apples. They're, they're good for like for baking. Okay. Um, choke cherries, but yeah, there are just plants that grow on like the forest floor. We're kind of in a unique place because where we are is technically boreal forest. So it's basically what runs through Canada, but kind of has dipped down across the border. Okay. We're only about 10 miles from Canada. So, but we're also very close to the North shore of Lake Superior, which kind of has its own, almost its own little biome because the lake causes its own weather and its own geology and then to the west and then the south of us we have kind of farmland so Mm. we get kind of a variety of different plants and stuff here like oaks don't we mostly have pine trees here we don't get a lot of hardwood like minneapolis has big oak trees and huge maple trees our trees like that here don't grow that big Okay. But like we have more oaks here now because our, our climate has warmed up a bit. So we see more oaks. I'll go and pick acorns. Oh, cool. Okay. And you have to fight the squirrels for them. <laughs> squirrels and the bears really like the acorns <laughs> and hazelnuts. We can get those too. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So we do pick those. We do get some competition from the bears for the berries. Okay. <laughs> kind of watch out for them. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. I'm looking forward to learning more about the plants you can eat. I often, you have to get the timing down really well because they're often, if you pick them too late, they're like bitter. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to pick them as, as young plants, which can, so you've got a couple of days. You okay. know, when they start to sprout, you've got like three, four days to pick them. So those, I'm still learning about those plants. We have quite a lot of plants and mushrooms to identify here just because we have kind of a convergence of three different kind of biome areas. We'll get stuff that randomly, like like animals transport up here from close by. So we'll get stuff that doesn't normally grow here that suddenly is growing because the animals have carried it with them or whatever. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, well, I get, like hearing you describe it, it's like, I'm just, I'm always trying to think of like what's, from like a, you know an evolutionary perspective, like what's natural or what what would have been likely, and I can totally the the way you're describing all these these um, edible plants, I can totally picture someone ten thousand, twenty thousand years ago walking through the woods, just kind of browsing as they go. You know what I mean? Not necessarily like coming back with a salad, but just kind of yeah. on the go. You know when yeah. it's um yeah. you know ultimately critically fresh. So to, it, ma- it makes total sense to me, you know, and, um, I wanted to ask you as well, I'm blanking for a second here. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, <laughs> it's uh it's interesting when, when I'm recording, it's like, I'll be list. I'm listening to someone's train of thought, but then I'm also trying to note in the back of my head, like questions. Oh, to, yeah. to, to follow up on that, but, oh, I totally blank. Oh, this is what I was going to ask. In the wintertime, is there anything edible plant-wise up there? Not a lot. Um, it gets pretty, pretty dead. Like right now, I'm trying to think if you could even find much of anything. You you can harvest chaga all through winter if you can find it. They actually recommend that you wait until it's been 20 degrees or colder for a couple of nights so the sap has completely stopped running. Okay. Um, because otherwise, if if you harvest it too early and it's still got sap in it, it doesn't dry real well. Mm. Um, I, I took the chance on mine because we were where we were hunting was so far in the woods. It's like I'm not coming back anytime right. real soon, so I'm just gonna take it because I'm here. Um, and that worked out fine because it was it was like mid-September, so it was already getting chilly. Okay. But like this time of year, it, it would be pretty rough. I, I often think about, like before we were here, we had Native Americans who lived here. Right. And then there were like fur traders that came like through the Great Lakes and down from Canada's Hudson Bay. And I think, what did people eat? They had to have eaten like a lot of like beaver and muskrat because like that's what you can access. Right. And deer. Um. But like, as far as plant stuff, there is not much. It, everything completely stops running when it gets so cold. So like, I, I don't really know, like if a person, could you survive on like chewing on leaves and stuff? Like the deer, <laughs> like the deer, the deer come and eat our, all the brown leaves out of our lilacs, but I don't think it would do much for us. Sure. I guess that's so why I, we I have to eat the deer. I think it would be pretty rough. I, I can't imagine what winters were like, like living outside. Well, I, uh, what was, I can't remember how I came across this. Oh, this is how I did. I remember. Um, I'm pretty sure I was talking to wild man Earl, 
the wild men of the north, as he's properly addressed. Um, and I thought he'd I, – I can't find it. I was trying to find it, but I'm pretty sure he'd sent me this article about the Blackfeet natives up in Montana. And they uh, – it was kind of a custom or ritual where the children would bathe in the river all year round, whether it was hot, cold, snowy, icy, whatever – and it was like a kind of a body hardening toughness thing. And was it, while I was searching for that, an article popped up about, I believe it was Native Americans in Michigan and how actually wintertime for them was like the epic hunting season because they could travel so much easier through like, you know, I've been to the North Shore up where you are and it's so thick up there. Mm-hmm. For them in the wintertime, the snow, they could travel so much faster and that was like their real prime hunting season which was yeah fascinating i don't know if you've heard of how similar things for the natives up uh, around where you are now yeah well and they it makes it easier to track like even now like we had a really mild fall we kind of had like october was pretty snowy and cold but then we got this like burst of really warm fall-like weather in november so it was really mild like november december and most of january and so we didn't have much snow the, the lake, it was cold enough for the lakes to freeze. So the lakes froze, but we had no snow. So you just had like perfectly frozen clear ice. Like you could skate on it. People take their skates out on the lakes. So we had that. But the deer hunters, deer hunting here is only for a couple of weeks for okay. firearm. And it's in November. It opens like two weeks before Thanksgiving. Okay. And there was no snow. So it was warm and no snow, and it usually makes for bad hunting for them. Mm. The, the deer, their activity changes, you know, so where you normally see them, they're not there anymore. And they, you can't track them right? because you don't, you know, especially late fall when like all the leaves are already off, everything's been trampled, you know, <laughs> it, it's very hard to track it when the ground freezes, you know, you know, it doesn't leave much for marks. You don't have snow. So it, it makes for hard hunting when you don't have snow. Right. Um, here, I'm trying to think of what people would have hunted way back then. We have a lot of white-tailed deer now, but my understanding is that they're not actually native to this area. They came with Europeans, mm. like from Appalachia and over that direction. They okay. kind of came this way. We used to have, oh, what are they called? We used to have caribou. Oh, right. Okay. Um. They, they, they had there was a certain species i can't remember what they're called they're, they've talked about trying to bring them back oh wow, okay but we had caribou we had a lot of wolves so there was a lot of you know the kind of historic human and wolf battles back when people <laughs> first moved up here sure um so we still have that now like we, we have a pretty healthy population of gray wolves so there's a lot of competition for the deer with the wolves in, in some areas um are, are there quite so, a few I mean, moose as... up there? Mm-hmm. Are there quite a few moose up there? Yes and no. We we do. We're kind of prime moose habitat, but their population where we are has like hugely decreased in the past like twenty oh, years. Okay. Um, they're like over across the border in Ontario. They're pretty good. Okay. Um, here it has. They've been studying for a long time. It seems to be kind of a combination of. The climate has changed just enough where some of their plants that they eat don't grow like they used to. And then we have um, 
some ticks that we don't usually have here that have moved in and they, they will they will cause such severe blood loss in the moose that they don't survive the winter because they end up like super skinny and then they get um they get a brain disease similar to i can't remember what it's called oh like they cwd kind of like a mad no, cow they, or they do get in the southern part of the state some of the deer do have cwd i can't remember what the moose one is it's a specifically a brain disease that just makes them hmm. it like totally changes their behavior like they'll come into town and like walk on the sides of the highways oh, and where you normally wouldn't see them. Okay. They don't like to be out of the woods. We, we, we see them more now than we used to. So it seems to be a little bit better, but not as often. Okay. Um, so so I'm sure that moose hunting was a much, much bigger. Like here, they actually closed the moose hunt here a few years ago okay. because of the population issue. Um, we have a lot of grouse. So grouse hunting would be pretty good, at least in the fall. Fishing. We do lots of ice fishing up here. Pretty pretty good trout fishing. Okay. So I'm I'm not sure. I don't know if natives would have done much for trout fishing or not. I would imagine they did to some degree. At least we we get quite a few places where the moving water stays open most of the winter. Okay. So you don't have to dig three feet of ice with your gas powered auger to get to the water. <laughs> sure. Has it like have you heard of anything of what like I was in uh when I was in Lofoten and Norway, they had, we went to a Viking longhouse where they would spend the winter and it was like, oh, this is cozy. It's awesome. You know, but I'm trying to picture if you didn't have something like that and you're more, you know, building stuff out of, you know, logs and animal skins. Like, do you know what, have you heard heard or seen anything of what the people up there lived in during the winter time? They they were still, my understanding is they were still fairly nomadic. Okay. And it was kind of the same thing. Like they didn't, didn't so much have like what we'd see as like a teepee, but more of like a, like a dome shape. Okay. Where they could use it. Like the birch trees are really bendy when they're young. So they would make good, you could easily bend them. Um, and, and I think a lot of them, they, I know there were bigger ones that were more communal where you may have a couple of families at the same time. Right. Um, Cause I know at some of like those encampments that I mentioned earlier, they, they actually make some of those shelters and then they would build the fire in the middle of it and just have the, the hole at the top. Right. I'm not sure how that worked out with heavy snow and stuff with that. I guess so I when, when I think, when I think about living outside in the winter, I just think, Oh, it must've been so hard, but I imagine it just like, when it's what you do, it's just what you do. You know, you don't have the comparison of sitting at home on the couch and reading a book on the Kindle. Right, right. <laughs> but it's 30 below. I mean, you still had a fire at least. No, I could I could see that. I could see how, you know, I'm sure these people know how to, they were very skilled at making these things. But I could see how it could be pretty well insulated and very warm, you know, even with snow, you know, because that's, snow is such a good insulator. And then uh, you throw yeah, in a fire and you know, a group of folks, it's kind of like you can hang out. You probably don't need to eat quite as much because you're kind of chilling more. Mm-hmm. Um, although yeah. if the hunting was good, maybe you're out. But yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to me, it's, you know, you know, an extreme environment like that. How would you survive? But it's, it was probably easier than, <laughs> than right. I imagine. Yeah. Well, and they, we get a lot of people here that camp in the winter. Um, they like to go being in the boundary waters in the winter is really, it's really quiet. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, 
you know, in the summer, you, even when you don't have the noise of like motors and cars, because like in the Boundary Waters, except for a couple of lakes, you're not allowed motors. You can only, you can go on foot or you can take your canoe and that's about all you, all you get. So it's really quiet anyways, but you always have the noise of like the birds and the leaves and the animals. And in the winter, it's just really quiet. So people like to go up there and do winter camping and they do, most of them do hot tent camping. Okay. So I imagine it would be kind of a similar thing where they just had, you know, they wouldn't have had a stove. Like people actually haul wood stoves on their sleds. They like pull them with their skis or their snowshoes or sometimes their dog sled and they go camping. Um, Are they using like canvas wall tents or that style? Yeah, mostly. I've seen a few people actually when I was snowshoeing a couple of weeks ago, someone had built an igloo that they apparently stayed in for a couple of days. Oh, that's cool. Actually built, like it had the actual entrance into it and the chimney and the whole deal. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. So people do, they still do some of that. So I imagine it was, you know, not with our, our modern fabrics and everything, but a similar type of type of things you can use the snow and build it up against your tent it gives you a lot of insulation right right did so with, did it have a fire inside the igloo with it, it looked to me like they had some kind of a stove oh they, i got gotcha. you okay like they had like a like a fire ring but they had some kind of a stove with okay them, I think. interesting <clears throat> there's a it's it's kind of become like a backcountry hunting thing but there's these teepee tents like they're like super lightweight teepee tents from nylon or dyneema or whatever super high-tech fabrics but they have these titanium stoves that only weigh you know a couple pounds so you can like Mm -hmm. backpack in have a teepee tent and then have like a legit you know wood-burning stove which yeah you know man it gets cold in colorado you know early archery season it gets cold especially you know you're up high it gets very cold and having something like that to come back to will be nice but I don't know that extra weight. I don't know. I don't know what the balance. <laughs> it's, it's a better workout, but I don't know if that's when you want to be uh, uh, taking that opportunity. So, yeah, I'll have to see. It might be fun though with the kids in summer, mm-hmm. you know, because even you know, again, you're always so high here altitude wise. You know, even July, August, it's like below freezing mm-hmm. at night. Yeah, but yeah, it's just that that whole. Just living, you know, I grew up in California, so that's a very different situation than northern Minnesota and just spending time, well, living out in the wintertime would be just, uh, it's just, I think that my growing, the way I grew up in my childhood makes that just seem so out there, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is really it was amazing to me to, like I said, to go to college and people were just like, what are you talking about? Right, right. <laughs> you know, cause we would, that was, I loved going trapping with my dad. We still do the same hikes in the winter. Okay. We're just not trapping anymore. Okay. And it, it's lots of fun to go. We, we would bring like our, we made SpaghettiOs like right in the can over the fire. Oh, yeah, so yeah. We'd bring our SpaghettiOs and some snack packs and some cream soda. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you get to cook food. Fuel. So yeah, it was it was lots of fun to go, and, and I still enjoy going. We go, we try to go either in the fall or in the spring. Okay. We're hoping to go in March. When when you get a little bit of the snow off the ice, it's a little bit easier walking. Okay. Do you do, you do much ice fishing? Uh, ice fishing. Excuse me. <sighs> we haven't the past few years. I like to do. 
um like 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 panfish fishing is lots of fun like sunfish okay there's a couple of really good sunfish lakes here and so they have a really high limit because they're, they're just little little right. fish and there's lots of them so you can fish up like 20 or 30 of them and they oh, make wow. really good panfish for cooking and they're just they're fun to, they're fun to catch you know and when you get a nice kind of like a 30 degree day and you can hang out and you can you know, kind of have your winter picnic and build a fire on the ice and you just kind of catch fish after fish, you know, diving after tip-ups and stuff. Okay. Um, I, I have quite a few friends who do, who get into the deeper water trout fishing. Um, I like to eat trout. My sister does trout fishing Okay. in the summer. She, she does really good cooking with, with trout. She's a really good cook. Okay. Um, for me, not as much like it some of the lakes you would fish on they're really deep really big lakes and most of the people who fish on them even when they're checking ice thickness and stuff they like wear flotation suits and stuff for safety oh wow, okay like i don't like to have to worry about falling yeah. <laughs> falling in the ice as much as they seem to um we, we carry ice picks when we're out anyhow so we always have ice picks with when we're on the lakes anyhow and i hike I usually hike with trekking poles, but in the winter I have, my dad actually made it. It's like a big, like a broom handle from like a shop broom. So it's a big, thick broom handle. And then on the end, it has a chisel on it. So that's my hiking pole. And you can just check the ice thickness as you go. Oh, cool. Okay. You want. So you kind of like stab, step, you know, that's cool. Yeah. So that that works out pretty good. And then we keep ice picks. I've, I've never fallen in, but I've known people who have. <laughs> I try to not want to fall into the into the ice. Yeah, it seems like a um, uh, a life situation that's unless you know controlled properly, you probably want to avoid. Yeah, it they it, it's usually in the winter here pretty easy to start a fire as long as you don't lose your stuff. So you kind of get in the habit of like you might. Most of the time, if you're out trekking in the winter, you'll have a sled of some sort. So you pull your gear on a sled. But if you fall through the ice and you can't reach your sled or your sled goes in, you have to have like weatherproof fire starter stuff like in your coat or on mm. your, you know, in your pockets or something. That's usually what they recommend <clears throat> is that you start fire and dry your clothes right away. But yeah, my, my dad has told some stories about trapping in years past where they have you know, him and his friends have gone through the ice and he said, you basically get to shore, light a really big fire and take off all of your clothes to dry them out. Right. I thought that sounds really unpleasant. <laughs> so I, I, I like going with my dad cause he knows the ice and the lakes really well. Okay. He knows all the areas to watch out for. So I like, I like going with him. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad he still likes to go. There, you just reminded me, there's a book I read, I believe it's called the dangerous river. I think that's what it's called. I got to look it up, but it's the Nahani. I, I think I'm saying that right. Nahani or Nahani. It's up in the Northwest Territory in Canada, but it was these guys that went up, I think after World War One. these Canadian guys. And they lived, they lived and trapped up there for the winter. But he was telling a story how following the river, he fell through the ice, got out, and then there was a huge pile of driftwood that he lit on fire and just ran around mm-hmm. it for hours butt yeah. naked you know while right? everything yeah. else dry. but uh yeah i mean there have been times where where even you maybe just step in the slush and it gets in your boot and it's like if you got two miles to walk yet walking with slush in your boot it is not any fun at all yeah. even if it's a mile you know a milder day yeah i can't 
can't imagine some of the old timers did some pretty crazy adventures. You made me think of, you mentioned bare feet a while back when you were mowing and then you're making me think of it now, but is that like you, we've talked about this a lot in the past, but you're very intentional about going barefoot as much as possible. Is that something like you did throughout your whole life or is it something that kind of went away and you brought back or how, how has that been kind of incorporated? Oh. I didn't, I spent lots and lots of time outside as a kid. Like we were just outside all day. You know, we had breakfast at home and then we came in when our mom dragged us in and for dinner. <laughs> we were outside a lot. We, we have a lake that's just like two blocks from our house. We spent a lot of time swimming in the river in the lake. So we were always just kind of running around barefoot. I had quite a few bike crashes without wearing <laughs> shoes on my feet. So I got some good foot injuries from my bike crashes. But I... When I got to be, you know, probably that like 12, 13 year age, I pretty much stopped going barefoot most of the time. And like, and then I got, went to college and then I got a job. I worked in retail for a long time. So I was just in shoes all the time and my feet would just get more and more sore. So I'm like, obviously I have the wrong shoes. I need more cushioning in my shoes because my feet hurt from being on the cement all day long. And over time, I ended up with like a really sore big toe joint. This mm. was probably 10, 12 years ago. And it was like, I couldn't bend my big toe anymore because it was just so sore and it would get super inflamed and swollen from walking. So I went to the foot doctor and she said, well, you got to buy these types of like stiff soled shoes or we can do surgery, but the surgery fails 50% of the time. <laughs> and I thought, well, that doesn't seem like a good option. And I was like, well, giving, giving up all of the like skiing and hiking and stuff that I do wasn't a good option. And I found somewhere in there, I must have gone looking online, but somewhere in there is where I found Vibram's five finger shoes. It was mm. when they first put them out. This was probably in like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Okay. And so I started wearing those because it just, what they talked about in their stuff seemed to make sense. And that was, I it was actually the same time I read that book. Oh, what is it called? The one about Scott Jurek. Oh, born to run. And then, yeah. 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 I, I read that book at the same time. And so I was like, Oh, starting to put it together. I was like, so this has probably not been helping. Like buying the more cushioned shoes has not been helping my foot problem. Right. And so I kind of stepped backwards and doing so I started going barefoot whenever I could and then when I couldn't I wore the the funny monkey feet that's what my kids call them <laughs> my, my monkey shoes. they were always a hit at the playground all the other kids are like what are you wearing <laughs> right and like like within like the course of like a summer like all of my foot problems went away like they oh, just wow. completely stopped and they really never came back but then we would get to winter and I was like, well, now what? Like, what am I supposed to do in the winter? It's too cold to go barefoot. And so I'd always have to like reset in the spring and kind of start over with like being walking barefoot or wearing sandals or, mm. or whatever. I like the earth runners. I like their sandals. Okay. I'll have to check those out. Earth, um, earth, earth runners is what they're called. Earth runners. Yeah. I like there's, there, there's quite a few of them I tried. I just okay. think like they fit a little bit better. Okay. But yeah, come winter, it was like, well, now what? Now I'm back in my winter boots, which still have the heel on them. Right. You know, which was really weird. Like after going six months of wearing like minimalist shoes and then going back to like a heeled boot, like you like it like throws you forward. You don't even notice it when you're used to wearing them until you have to put them on again. 
and my, my tennis shoes that I had worn before I switched to the Vibrams were just like an Asics triathlete running type of shoe. Okay. And like that wedge that's in there to like push your feet up, like the inside of your arches, like to push it up. Like yeah. I couldn't even wear them. It hurt my feet so bad because it was like pushing your feet and it was really weird to wear normal shoes. So then in the winter, I mostly wear ultra shoes. They're just still the ones that are the most comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Ultra? So they don't have, yeah. Yeah. Um, so at least I don't have like the heel thing going on. I still have to adapt to going barefoot again because you lose, even wearing like minimalist shoes, you, you lose that foot pad mm-hmm. at the bottom of your foot. And then so you kind of have to start over again. Totally. With, I, I push as far as I can and I'll, I'll stand outside in the snow in my bare feet, but I'm just, I'm not at a point where I can like walk around in the snow. Like it just is too cold for me. It's too cold on my ankles. I've seen guys but, that run, you know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I've seen, you know, it's maybe one to three miles barefoot yeah. in the snow, um, which I could totally see how it's doable. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It. It's one of those things where every time we start to work out of winter, I think, okay, this is the year that I'm going to, you know, start going barefoot earlier when there's still snow, but it's not 40 below. Right. And and bring it later. But then we get into winter and I'm like, oh, no, I want my shoes back. Totally. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that point of, of doing I know it's possible. I know a lot of people do it. It just is, for me, has been... A difficult transition. Oh, I, <laughs> so I go barefoot in the house most of the time. Um, and I do, I do a lot of yoga, which has helped a lot with my foot strength just because you're in so many different positions. So that, that has helped too. Right. And I've, I found, um, like, so, like Katie has a, Katie Bowman has a whole body barefoot book. Okay. Which is really, she, she has a lot of good foot exercises and stuff in there that I started doing a couple years ago. Okay. Which works. It was just really interesting to me how much, how well she explains it. Because she was just in one of her podcasts the other day was talking. What she said. Well, if you think about how many bones are in your feet, they're meant to move a lot. And when you put them in shoes, they don't. And so you lose mobility in your feet and your ankles, and it just goes all the way up. You lose it in your knees. You lose it in your hips. You know, you lose your lower back. So it's just it's been been interesting following all of that information that has come out. Oh, for sure. I love being like barefoot in the woods. I love, I I carry shoes in case I get, like if I cut my foot or I get a, you know, if I do something, I do carry shoes with me in my backpack, but you know, walking on the rocks and the tree woods and stuff with, with, you know, bare feet is, it's my favorite way to hike. I love hiking barefoot. Well, it's, I was going to say it's, it's the like going barefoot step one, like start your house, but then Mm kind of, the actualization of that process to me, it's the uneven surface, you know, whether it's, um, rough, sharp river rock forest floor, whatever. Um, that to me seems kind of like the, the missing secret sauce, just all that variety and input, you know, I'm, I'm standing on, I'm standing on the, uh, this is the, uh, stoic river rock. This is the production one actually, but it's just, I don't know. Using this so much now, it's like, man, even the, even flat surface feels odd now. And then kind of, you mentioned I went, uh, a buddy and I went for a trail run Tuesday. It was like 61 degrees here. Nice. 
and uh, I put on these trail runners that I don't really wear much at all, and they it felt I might as well have been wearing high heels. Mm-hmm. The way it felt, it just it was so shocking to me, and the way the toes get pinched in the front, it's just um, you know it makes sense for kind of scrambling on rock and these really technical trails. It's there's certainly a benefit to it, but yep. it's definitely not good for your feet, you know? So, yeah. yeah, it, it's really, you know, like if you walk in the water when you're barefoot, I, I, I just like getting all the input. You yeah. know, you can, the second you put your foot in the water, you can tell if the rock's going to be slippery. You can't tell in your shoes. So then you end up on your face in the water. Cause you don't know if it's slippery. Right. You know, I, I, I love all of the input, like the way that the, like the, the dirt in the forest is cold. It's always cold, even when it's July and 90 degrees, you know, so you get that cool aspect on your feet. Right. It just, yeah, it's, it's really so different. It's like, even if you wear super thin minimalist shoes, there's so much that you miss. Right. You know, and your feet are so fast at picking up that input. It's like, if you're going to step on something, you shouldn't, you know it before you put your foot down. Cause your feet are just have so many nerves are really quick about giving you that input. Right. That's what I'm still yeah, I look forward. We get this whole week of below zero weather. I'm going to be tired of wearing socks. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that psychology works. It's like, even though the house obviously is heated, it's pretty much the same temperature, no matter whether it's 20 or negative 20 outside. But when I know that it's 30 below zero outside, my feet are cold. So then right. I have socks on. Right. That's, I had a similar journey with, uh, I had shin spl- I've had shin splints twice in my life. The first was my freshman year of high school football, just all fall. I had shin splints. It was horrible. And then my, it was my sophomore year of college, but it was my first year playing on the lacrosse team, like full time. And, uh, I had horrible shin splints and that summer. So that would have been 2005 or no, excuse me, 2006. That summer I bought Nike freeze. Do you remember those? Oh, sure. They had a little bit of an elevated heel, but they were like the, well, they weren't the first, but they were the first that came to my attention that had that flexibility and all that. And yeah. I don't know if it was those solely or what, but never again have I had issues with shit splints yeah. or anything like that. I did. I think I popped a plantar fascia. I was doing a CrossFit workout at the gym. I was coaching. We would, uh, we, you know, we would do like clean and jerks or whatever, and then run out the front door to do like a 400 meter run. And I'd always jump off the, it was maybe four or five steps. And I think I just wasn't warmed up and just, I remember landing and feeling like a pop at the bottom of my foot. And I, I think I just tore, it was like that acute plantar fascia tear that sucked. That was like six months of just, it would it just wouldn't go away. You know, it's hard. You can, it's hard to rest your feet, mm-hmm. but and I, I did, that's funny. I had a, sim, there's a lot of parallels here, but I had a very similar, uh, process with reading born to run, buying Vibrams and like going all in on the barefoot running and haven't really gone back. You know, I, I haven't had a pair of those for a while, but you know, I've always had the minimalist shoes. So I haven't, I don't know. Have you found a good, like minimal, like shoe, like Vivo barefoot. I've heard good things. I've never owned a pair, but. I have these Merrells right now, but they don't really, they keep changing them and the Vivo seem good. There's zero shoes as well. They're based actually just down the road here in Colorado, but I don't know yeah. if you've explored that much. A little bit. It's one of those, one of those things where, so after the Vibram thing came out, 
once my feet were feeling better, I started running again. And when I started running is where I ran into the ultra shoes. Okay. And so I, I primarily wear their lone peaks there. I haven't, I've been a little disappointed the past couple of years in their quality for their cost. It's like yeah. the uppers get like really floppy and just kind of, they wear out faster than I think that they should for what they cost. Right. So I'm kind of always on the look for another perfect shoe, but I haven't found one that fits me really well. Okay. It gives me like the same comfort. Um, I do like the Earthrunner sandals. I really like. Okay. Um, I do have a pair of Zeros sandals, which are I like them too, but they're the one that they have like this little strap that goes over your big toe. Okay. It just is weird to me. Like I should have got one that didn't have the toe strap. It just kind of feels strange to is me. It a, it, but... Is it for the big toe specifically? Like it's like yeah. a little loop. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. So I have those. I do have a pair of Merrill. Um, they've been comfortable, but they I don't. There's something about the like the the part of the inside of the shoe where it touches your sole. Like it just it has like a hard piece in it. Okay. I can't remember what model mine are. I think I have the, I have the, um, there's the barefoot, oh man. Oh, they're the trail glove, trail glove four, I believe. And I really like them, but they just, they don't make them anymore. Yeah. My first pair of Vibram shoes, they only made one model at the time they had, they called it maybe two models. They called it the KSO and it came in two colors. Oh yeah. Okay. I remember those. I got the KSO and they had the super thin sole. Like the sole of the shoe is like five millimeters, maybe, maybe not even that. Super thin. So when you're walking, like, you know, at crosswalks, they have like the bumps at them. Yeah, yeah. Like they have the textured, the textured crosswalk on the sidewalk. And like you can feel them under your feet because they're so little, little. So I really like those. I wore through them, wore through the bottoms and they stopped making them. Okay. And they started coming out with these other ones that have the thicker sole. And I was like, but I want the other one. And they, they put those back out like two years ago. Okay. Nice. Oh, I got another pair of those, which, which I still really like. I'm kind of like, well, maybe I should buy several of them in case they stop making them again. Cause I really like the super thin bottom. It's just so much more flexible. I did get, I didn't, haven't gotten them yet. I, I backed the Skinner's two campaign. Oh yeah. Okay. So those shipped last week. So we'll try those out and see what I think of those. So those are kind of a, they're, they're kind of like a sock with a reinforced bottom on them. Right. Actually, uh, this is funny. I was one of my uh, early entrepreneurial entrepreneurial. Or, uh, I'll learn how to speak eventually. One of my early entrepreneurial uh, endeavors was trying to make. They were like, it was like kind of a moccasin combined with a shoe. And I, I, I glued rubber on just like that. Oh, like, nice. like I ordered, um, it was actually Buffalo leather from Minnesota actually. And it was brain tanned, smoked leather, super soft and pliable. It smelled like a campfire mm-hmm. as you can imagine. But yeah, I glued on stuff just like this, but these look really interesting to me. I haven't looked at them for a while, but now that you mention it, I'll be very, I'll be really curious to see what you think. Wow, they did a million yeah. bucks. Good for those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I was excited to see that they're on the way. I always like to try out new shoes. I always have a few things that I always want to 
I like water bottles and backpacks. <laughs> so it's totally. like I have lots of both of them and then shoes. I have lots of shoes. Totally. Yeah, I've actually been um I've been playing around with my I have a like a weight vest that I'll wear okay. and hike with, but it's super uncomfortable on your traps after a while. They just because there's no hip belt or anything. Mm-hmm. Plus, you kind of look like you're wearing you're wearing like military gear, which yeah, I think just yeah, it was funny. I used to do it in my old neighborhood. I'd push the stroller and be wearing. I, I tend to wear all black for whatever reason, not necessarily intentionally, but you just look a little sketchy, yeah. you know, walking around yeah. the same. Although the kids really helped uh, diffuse that. But um, <laughs> I've been playing around with too my ultra running pack, loading that and trying to see like. Mm-hmm. You know, because that that design, and especially like the front kind of dashboard, where you can have your phone, your water, all these little pockets in yeah. front versus, you know, traditional backpacks, everything's on the back. You got to take it off, mm-hmm. whatever. But I've been experimenting with that as kind of like, you know, another, a, a way to add, I guess, load and intensity to my yeah, walking. let me know how that goes because that's one thing I struggle with with backpacking because I, I have a day pack for hiking, but I'm only carrying, you know, maybe two liters of water. So right. it's not much weight. And it's like, I've started like, like I have two bladders for, for I, I like fill both of them and carry them just to have weight. Totally. And it's like, I, I'll actually wear my backpacking stuff with my gear in it. And I'll go hike on like the six mile trail and people are like, wow, you're like... <laughs> Over overkilled your trip on the six mile trail with your thirty pound backpack. Totally. <laughs> Just tried to get used to that shifting that center of gravity for carrying that weight for so long. Right. Has been I just end up always with sore feet. That mm. was great. My my ultras have worked really good for hiking. They have been my best hiking shoes. I got their mids, the Lone Peak mids. Yep. For our backpacking trip last summer and. They were great. Their mesh, it's like stepping in the beaver dams and getting all muddy and wet. And they were dry by the next morning. Every day they dried out. No, not a single blister. So they were were great shoes. It just, I wish they lasted longer. You know, I put like 40 miles on them on our hike and they look like I've been wearing them for two years. Totally. Yeah, I've (laughs) heard a lot of the same. They actually, it was interesting. The, uh, those Lone Peaks were like the official shoe of the John Muir Trail. Every... Everyone had Lone Peak except me because I, I'm a fool. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, they. Uh, I have heard the same things about the quality. So hopefully they're stepping up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice to you know, and I don't expect them to last five years or anything. But it was like, wow, I didn't. You know, they really, according to their own information, should go like four to five hundred miles, and I get like twenty five percent of that before the upper loses so much of its, like it just gets really floppy. So then you don't get any, you know, you're trying to step on like wet logs and stuff and your feet are slipping in the shoes because you don't have, have any kind of support. And like, for me, that's one benefit I have found of being barefoot a lot is you get when your feet and your ankles get much stronger and they are more flexible. You don't, I don't worry so much about like rolling ankles. Like I don't wear, the mid height lone peaks like for ankle support i wear them because we do lots our trails have lots of rocks so you're kind of climbing down these like 
really narrow paths where you can easily get like your foot stuck between rocks and that it'll catch the skin of your ankle on the rock. So it's more like abrasion protection and booze protection than anything. Because um, there have been times like even when we were backpacking, I rolled my ankle more than once and it, you know, it's like, oh, that hurt, but that's it. Like it doesn't actually cause an injury. And part of it is just because my feet are just, they're stronger and they're more flexible. Right, right. So that has worked out, worked out pretty well. I don't, don't worry so much about hurting my ankles and stuff. Yeah. It's interesting seeing the progression of, uh, you know, backpacking with like the big leather boot halfway up your shin to now it's, it's really trail, you know, most, most people I see that know what they're doing. They're wearing trail runners, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It. And like, for me, like, I love the the look of like the really good leather hiking boots. Like I see that I'm like, those are such nice boots. Like my yeah. sister has a pair and she just loves them, but my feet hate them. Like the hardness of the leather, even when they're broken in, like it, it hurts my feet. Okay. <laughs> like I don't, and, and they stay, my feet get, like if your feet get wet or your feet sweat, they stay just kind of wet. I'd, I've been really happy with using trail shoes for for backpacking and I'll you know the first thing I do is take my shoes off when I get to camp I go mm-hmm. barefoot at camp the rest the rest of the time and it was really nice our, our last backpacking trip was a loop around the lake and it was really nice because you get to camp and then you soak your feet in the lake totally. for for a good hour after totally so it was good good recovery swimming in the cold lake and <laughs> soaking the toes just another opportunity for environmental conditioning Yes. Yeah. We had a lot of variety. It was, it, the days were really warm, but like our first night, I think it got down to 38 degrees. Oh, wow. And it was early August. So that was pretty cold for okay. early August. But then the other nights it was like 65. So my sleeping bag that was perfect the first night was too much the other three nights. Totally. So yeah, we had a lot of, a lot of variety. Nice to be right on the lake though. And it, it was, the lake is a fairly deep lake, so it stays pretty cool through the summer. Okay. Are there any, I've been thinking about this recently, like I, we've talked about this in the past, but I think, and this, this probably isn't the year, the year to do it, but maybe 20, maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe 2022. But anyways, I was thinking about, you know, if there's a place in Minnesota on a lake, kind of like a, you know, like that has the infrastructure of a summer camp or even just like a camp mm-hmm. where we could have a gathering of monkeys. I think that would be rad yeah there are quite a there's quite a lot of resorts up here that can do like that kind of a function okay well most of them are on the lakes that back in the day like in the 50s and 60s there were actually quite a few resorts up in the boundary waters oh wow, okay but then they when they passed the wilderness act in the 70s they basically had to pack them all out they, they so what they ended up doing is they, they couldn't keep the resorts there anymore because there's no structures allowed. Right. Like you can't even have like signage. So when you're hiking in the boundary waters, there's no blazes, no ribbons, no signs. Like you have to know how to navigate because none of that stuff is allowed. Like they, they don't build bridges. Like you got to walk through the right. rivers and stuff over the beaver dams. But it, so all those resorts had to come out of there and people basically packed them out in the winter. They, they would put them on trailers and snowmobile them out. And so they were reassembled as resorts that are outside of the boundary waters now. 
Okay. So there's actually quite a few of them. And then, like on the North Shore, like Lake Superior has quite a few yeah. of those places too. Okay. Yeah, that actually that yeah, would and most be... of them since our, our area was largely settled by Finnish people, almost everybody has saunas. So that's like what everybody, you go to the resort and you sauna and then you jump in the lake. Okay. Awesome. I love that's uh, I've camped up on the North shore um, near, I think it was Grand Marais and uh, the that water stays cold. This was like, yeah. you know, July 4th and that water is no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Lake superior is, once in a while, we get a really warm summer and it warms up a bit. But I think most of the time, like peak summer, it's still like in the 40s. It yeah. It's cold. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know, whatever. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, like if you were just kayaking and, you know, board shorts and fell in, yeah. I mean, you would really be at risk for drowning. Yeah. And we do see some of that. You know, you, you leave shore because it's a nice 85 degree day right but the lake because it's so big it acts like a big air conditioner so mm. that cold air coming up off the water is cold like if, and it, we see that here like early in the season until the lakes warm up where if you're out fishing on an 80 degree day you're still freezing on the lake because the water is 35 degrees right so it's 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 cold we we, we do see people who get you know, where they end up tipping a canoe or a kayak in Lake Superior, even in the middle of summer, they got to be rescued because right. it's so cold. Right. Any uh, any final thoughts? Final thoughts? No, I am excited to try out Stoic for my winter feet. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that should actually <laughs> work out well. To have an option for, you know, outside of, and and I have like I have. Some like massage balls. I actually use my five pound mass core weights to roll my feet. Oh, okay. I use, I use them to to roll the bottoms of my feet, so they work pretty good for that too. Totally. But yeah, I, I look forward to having an option to to not have to completely restart strengthening my feet every after right. every winter. Right. I wonder. Oh, let me try it real quick. I wonder how like you could. Oh. I guess you can. You could kind of like even jump on it a little bit or like trot in place. I wouldn't do it for like extended periods of time, but yeah. huh. Yeah, it'll be, I'm really, it's uh yeah, it'll just be so fascinating and interesting to get the feedback on Stoic specifically because it is, it's so different from all the other stuff we've done, you know? Yeah. So, and yeah, yeah it's I'm, one of, it's one of those things that you just, you think about, you know, your, your core strength or your quad strength. You think about your strength everywhere, but never your feet. Like right. you never think about our foot health and what our feet are doing. They, you know, a lot of the times if you have problems with like your knees or your lower back, it's actually coming from your feet. Right. So I find that really interesting. That's one of the other things I like about Katie Bowman is she really gets into that. Her podcast today, she was talking about your eye strength, you know, making sure that if you're on the computer that you take the time to look at different distances to exercise your eye muscles. Yeah. So she gets all into those little details. So I enjoy listening to all those. So then I'm like, spend the day looking out the window. Right, right now. Well, that's funny. You mentioned that. Cause that's actually an element of the body hardening manual for stoic. Oh, nice. And, uh, I think it was that, that podcast isn't new correct no that's actually started at the bottom so okay. this is like her second or third one okay. from probably okay. four years ago okay i was gonna say yeah. I, I that sounds familiar. i wonder if she did a follow-up but no that's that i think that's the first time i'd heard that and it makes so much sense when she said it, it was like oh man that's so obvious you know 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I've, you know, when I've done, when she started, I think she talked about it in one of her books too. So it's like, when I started paying attention, I'd realize that, you know, I would work for a few hours and then I might read on my Kindle, then I'd be on my phone and then I might watch TV and then I go outside. And it's like, if you actually focus on like a tree in the distance, like you can feel your eyes getting tired because they haven't been worked in that way because you always, you know, in your screens, right. It's like you can actually feel your eye muscles, like working to, to stay focused because you never use, use them in that way. Yeah, it was really interesting. Monkeys go barefoot, look far distances, and you'll get wilder. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for. Uh, I think, I think um, people are really gonna enjoy hearing this. Yeah, yeah, we have good conversations. Oh yeah, we always do. I wish I like I've said this before, but I wish we would have recorded more of them. But there's that we've only touched the tip of the iceberg, so. It'll be fun to uh, dive in deep. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, well, thanks again, and we'll talk soon. All right. All right. Bye, Kim. Thank you. See you, Dan.